Hi, I'm Helena Cobbin. I'm the CEO of the book publishing company Just World Books and president of the non-profit organization Just World Educational, which is proud to publish this present podcast series. Recently, we published two episodes in which I discussed Turkey and its domestic and regional policies with Professor Richard Falk. Now, I am pleased to present an interview I conducted July 24th with Peter Ford, who was Britain's ambassador to Syria 2003 through 2006, and who has remained an informed and close observer of Syrian affairs ever since. He was also, for several years after he left the British Diplomatic Service, the representative of the UN agency UNWA to the Arab world, based in Amman. In this half-hour interview, Ambassador Ford discussed aspects of the situations of both Syrians and Palestinians. A digest of our conversation will be posted shortly on our blog at www.justworldeducational.org where you can also find links to the interviews I conducted with Professor Falk and a wealth of informational resources about Palestine, Syria, and other issues of war and peace in the Middle East. So here's my conversation with Ambassador Peter Ford. I'm sitting here in Macclesfield, UK, with Ambassador Peter Ford, and we're going to talk a little bit about... um, ongoing events in Syria, where recently the White Helmets have been evacuated from southern Syria through Israel to Jordan and possibly coming here to the UK um, and going to France and Canada and elsewhere. Um, Peter, tell me what you think about the White Helmets and what their role was in the Syrian conflict and what the relationship between them and your government here in in the UK and other governments has been? Uh, The White Helmets are jihadi auxiliaries. Um, They are not, uh, as uh, claimed by themselves and their supporters in the British government and elsewhere, they are not simple uh, rescuers, they are not volunteers, they are paid professionals uh, of disinformation. Uh, They have an enormous um, budget for uh, propaganda, uh, which comes from uh, Western uh, governments. Their press department is 150 strong, 150, that is more than the combined press departments of the British Fire Brigade and Ambulance Service. But this gives us an idea of what the priority is for this very dubious organisation. You have only to look at the photographs of them in action. They they have, uh, in English, uh, the the name White Helmets on their uh, uniforms um, in Syria. You don't, if you're a a, a genuine rescuer, you don't go around with the the words in English, White Helmets, uh, on, on your jacket. No, all their activities are directed at mobilising Western opinion uh, behind the jihadis with whom they uh, associate. They co-locate their um, centres uh, with organisations like al- the Al-Qaeda 
organization known as an, an Nusra and with uh, other uh, groups, militant groups such as Jaysh al-Islam. They have in the past associated and been shown uh, waving the flags of ISIS. Uh, these are not good people. And uh, we in the West are being manipulated by them and by their handlers. Their number one handlers are the British, British intelligence services, who direct their operations and who fund them to the tune, uh, or in the case of the British government, of £38 million in the last uh, five years. You is can it, buy a lot it, of is, helmets with that. Is that £38 million a year for five years? Mm, or 30? No, no, that, that is, uh, or the government tell us mm -hmm. that it's £38 million cumulatively. And, and that is all a matter of public record, is it? Yes, this information was prized out of the Foreign Office by a Freedom of Information uh, Enquiry. Uh, but the British government have uh, been giving uh, every year um, an average of uh, $100 million, $60 million, pounds, uh, to the uh, opposition, including the White Helmets, uh, every year for the last several years, $100 million a year. The White Helmets are part of that regime change operation. Uh, their more, most uh, inglorious uh, exploits have been to fake uh, alleged chemical incidents, uh, to pretend to be rescuing children from rubble. These incidents are all staged, fabricated, uh, they deserve the Oscar uh, that they were granted by, uh, by Hollywood. They are fantastic uh, actors. They put on very professional production pieces. And these are the people who are now um, very significantly being uh, extricated by Western governments and Israel across uh, Israeli territory, although we don't know how many are going to remain behind in Israel, of course, but we are told that they are making their way through Israel and then Jordan to Britain and other Western countries. Uh, how we reconcile that with the safety of our countries is not very clear. These are people who in the past have been refused visas. Their head, Raid Saleh, was refused a visa to visit the United States in 2016. These are very suspicious characters with uh, known jihadi uh, associates who would never, never in a million years normally been granted asylum. And now they will have to be uh, uh, fed, watered, housed and pampered at the expense of the British taxpayer. And extra policing will be required to ensure this, our safety from them and their safety from us. So um, you obviously have a point of view about the White Helmets that is very different from that um, propagated by most of the left-wing slash liberal slash progressive media here in, in the UK. What kind of treatment do you get from people in these media outlets or in these political currents when you raise these questions about the White Helmets? 
it's extremely difficult to get a dissenting voice uh, heard. Um, the prevailing uh, narrative swamps uh, all other uh, narratives in the mainstream media. Uh, or, or the most you get is a, a, a sneering uh, uh, mention that the white helmets are considered to be terrorists by the Syrians and the Russians. There is no mention of the fact that former ambassadors and uh, many other Syria experts consider them to be associates of, of terrorists. These voices are simply drowned uh, out. So your, your voice or the voice of others who, who raise questions about the White Helmets, um, what kind of names do you get called? Uh, uh, Assad uh, sympathiser, uh, somebody who is trying to uh, defend the indefensible butcher of Damascus, uh, all the, 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 the terms of demonology uh, trotted out to associate people like myself um, with, uh, with, with Assad and to call him all, all the names uh, under the sun. And uh, this is how they try to smear you, just for uh, voicing some unpalatable truths about the opposition to Assad, leaving aside the merits or demerits of Assad, the fact is that the so-called rebels are no angels and that we, the British and the Americans and other Western governments, have been pumping money, arms, direction, political support and encouragement to the armed opposition groups, to militant jihadi Islamist groups, year after year, uh, with taxpayer money. The operation, thank goodness, has failed, is failing, but there is still a lot of unfinished business in Syria. What I greatly fear is that we are going to have soon another of these staged chemical warfare incidents. And where would that take place? It is already being prepared. There are reports that this is that the white helmets have been seen on manoeuvres uh, in Idlib province. Uh, previous, in previous years, there have been staged incidents in places like Khan Sheikhoun in 2017, which is in Idlib uh, province. Now, the beauty of Idlib, from the point of view of uh, people staging these incidents, is that the chemical weapons inspectors cannot go there. Why? Because they are in the hands, the areas are in the hands of the jihadis. They are too dangerous for the international inspectors to go there. This hasn't prevented in the past the international inspectors accepting fabricated evidence from the jihadis and their white helmets acolytes and um, presenting it as evidence supporting the thesis that Assad gassed his people. It's nothing of, of the kind. Uh, it, it, this uh, fabricated evidence uh, should never be, would never be acceptable in a court of law. Unfortunately for the jihadis in Duma, in April this year, uh, they lost control of the territory and the inspectors were able to visit. And very recently they've come up with an interim report which says that they found no evidence at all of use of any chemical weapons. 
specifically there was no sarin, which Western governments were accusing Assad of using in Duma. No evidence whatever. I thought that they said that there had been some sarin gas in Duma. No, no, the, the uh, OPCW mm-hmm. interim report um, published about two weeks ago mm-hmm. stated categorically that they found no evidence of sarin. They found evidence of chlorine, but chlorine in itself is not a, a prohibited uh, substance. Because and is widely many, used many, for many... Used for many things. Uh, but sarin... But the presence of Sarin was categorically refuted. Um, Peter, you were the UK ambassador in Syria from 2002 until 2005. That must have been an interesting time to be there. Um, what, did, what, what were your main impressions of what you saw when you were there? Well, reform was very much in the air initially. Um, Damascus, uh, Syria was uh, had a new young uh, president uh, there was uh, hope optimism vibrancy uh, we began to see a lot of the economic reform and there were whispers of uh, democratic reform coming up changes in the Ba'ath party uh, Bashar was being fated in uh, western capitals he went to Paris and London he, he'd been Just one month before I arrived in Damascus, he'd been having tea in Buckingham Palace with the Queen. It all started to unravel uh, because of events in neighbouring countries, Lebanon and Iraq. The invasion of Iraq uh, knocked things very badly off uh, course. Uh, reform came to a halt because Syria was forced to look to its own security. The Americans, uh, because of blowback from the mm-hmm. full-blown crisis in well, war in Iraq next door, um, many fighters went from Syria to uh, Iraq. The Syrian government at that time was extremely apprehensive that Once the Americans had dealt with Saddam, they would turn their attentions to Assad next. And for this reason, they did not stand in the way of many fighters making their way across Syrian territory. So who were those fighters, by and large? Were they Iraqi nationals? They, they were from all over. They, 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 not so much Iraqis. Iraqis stayed and, and fought. They were more um, Jordanians, Palestinians, uh, Libyans, uh, and native uh, Syrians, going back and to across the Syria-Iraq border to fight against the Americans. And uh, uh, there, there was blowback for Syria in many ways. Um, they had, they, it brought the timid um, stirrings of reform to a halt while security was the main issue. Uh, they came under Western fire, came under a lot of Western pressure, including from myself. I received regular instructions to remonstrate with the Syrians over allowing jihadis to cross their borders. Um, but personally, I, I could always understand why they were given really no choice. 
if the Americans had an easy passage through Iraq, the, the Americans made no secret of the fact that they were going to come knocking on Assad's door next. And then you had the Rafiq Hariri assassination in Lebanon um, in 2004, I want to say late 2004. Yeah. And that caused a big rupture in um, Syria's tentative um, attempt to, to make a rapprochement with definitely EU countries. Uh, absolutely. That brought to a halt negotiations in which I been very instrumental um, for an EU-Syria trade agreement. Um, relations uh, went into uh, the, the deep freeze with all the European countries. Um, again, I uh, received regular instructions to uh, lobby the Syrians about getting out of Lebanon. I must say I, I carried these out with more enthusiasm and conviction that my instructions about uh, Iraq, I believed that Lebanon had been a corrupting influence uh, on Syria in every sense, and they'd be better off uh, leaving. Uh, and leave they did in, in the end. Um, there were these mammoth demonstrations in, in Beirut, and um, following closely on uh, similar-looking demonstrations in Romania. At, at the time, there was a lot of nervousness uh, in uh, Syria because of what had been happening in Romania uh, with uh, huge uh, popular demonstrations uh, resulting in the hounding out of a government so anyway, some pretty interesting times. Did you have contacts with people in the Syrian opposition when you were there, or, or was that beyond your remit as the UK ambassador? Um, it, it certainly wasn't uh, beyond my remit, and they came uh, regularly to my house. Um, I actively encouraged them, including some people who are now quite prominent in the uh, opposition. Um, at the time, I thought they were brave but reckless. Um, nevertheless, I did what, what little I could to give them some diplomatic uh, protection at, at the time and to encourage the government not to overreact against them. But of course, the, these, this, the opposition at this time was secular opposition. These were genuine Democrats. Um, there were no Islamist uh, militants among them. These were communists and uh, democratic uh, uh, opponents. So um, you then left Syria and, and went to work for the United Nations for UNWA for many years, um, based in Jordan and responsible for um, outreach to Arab governments on behalf of UNWA. And in the course of that, presumably, you saw quite a lot of what was happening to the Palestinians in Syria um, during the early years of the conflict in Syria. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I went uh, to the Palestinian camps in Syria, particularly uh, Yarmouk. Um, I saw the, the devastation in that uh, camp. Which was uh, taken over uh, by armed uh, groups, including uh, ISIS. It was a very chaotic situation. 
which changed from day to day. Um, miraculously, we as an agency were able uh, one or two days a month to send food uh, in, um, but we never knew quite how our delegations would be received or whether they'd get back alive. Um, it, it, Could I ask, how did you know that they were ISIS? Uh, people in the, the camp told us, they, and, 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 and uh, ISIS didn't disguise themselves. They go around uh, waving their, their black and white uh, flags and wearing their, ba- their bandanas. Um, it was always pretty clear uh, who was uh, ISIS. Were there other group, opposition groups? In yes, there were, it, it was chaotic, and there was a lot mm-hmm. of infighting among the groups. Uh, but there, there were several of them were represented there, and Nusra were there, uh, Jaysh al-Islam, Ahrar al-Sham, uh, all the main groups had a foothold in Yarmouk, which was a very big area. Um, how about the, the Palestinian groups that were in Yarmouk or in other um, rebel-held Palestinian areas of Syria? Uh, they were divided. Uh, some were siding with, with the um, Islamist uh, rebels, but I must say that, that Hamas <coughs> uh, at the working level were not among them. The, some of the Hamas uh, Fighters were, were literally put to the sword by, uh, by ISIS, and they, they fought uh, heroically. Um, but uh, I'm sorry to say some of the other Palestinian militants did side with the jihadis. And were there Palestinians who were, who were siding with, with the government? Uh, yeah, very much so. Um, as, as you're aware, the Syrian government has always treated very well uh, the Palestinians in, in its midst, uh, giving them virtually all uh, rights uh, enjoyed by Syrian citizens, except the right to vote. Um, and most of them were, were uh, happy to be in Syria rather than in somewhere like uh, Lebanon, where they were generally treated worse. Or indeed Iraq, which... Uh, even, even worse still. <laughs> um, so going back to your experience um, with UNWA and your decades-long evaluation of, of the Palestinian situation, um, from what you saw on the ground in the West Bank and Gaza in those years you were working for UNWA, do you think that there is still a possibility of a two-state solution? Uh, not in my lifetime, I don't think. Um, I was never very optimistic that there could be two states for the very simple reason that I couldn't see by what mechanism Israel would be brought to accept uh, the reality of withdrawal from the occupied territories. Uh, I I don't believe in the one state. I think that would be simple uh, surrender, call it what you like. Um, I do believe the Palestinians should hold out for a separate uh, state, but I simply don't see, I didn't see then and I don't see, see even less today, the mechanism which is going to deliver it. It's certainly not going to be through negotiation. I think almost everyone can now see, as, as I was seeing even back then, that 
the American so-called mediators were never true mediators, but always, always were going to side with the Israelis and would never in a million years put real pressure on Israel. Uh, now that situation is absolutely blatant. The scales have fallen from the eyes of the Palestinian leadership. Uh, even they cannot pretend any longer that America is going to deliver a Palestinian state. Uh, but I don't see it happening on the military level uh, either. I slightly pin my hopes on technology, with, with possibly military technology, uh, miniaturized technology. Um, who knows? Um, ten years before the internet became public knowledge, no one could have conceived of the changes it was going to bring including to warfare. Um, but um, two, one state is a, a mirage, and two states is impossible to see happening in the short or medium term. So looking at um, occupied territories, of course, there is the other territory that's been occupied since 1967, which is Golan, which has been as we know, you know the, the location of the White Helmet evacuation and various other things going on there with, I, I believe, there has been a sort of a, a jihadi-controlled con, jihadi buffer zone um, between the IDF occupying force and the Syrian army there. What do you see happening on Golan? It's very interesting and it's very hard to predict. The Golan used to be entirely predictable. Year after year after year, the Syrian government used to acquiesce in the rolling over of the mandate for the UN separation force on the Golan. Undoff. Uh, on Undoff, without questioning it, and did not tolerate any um, fedayeen uh, or other military activity on, on the Golan. Effectively, the Syrian government acted as uh, Israel's best protector on the Golan. It was the calmest of all the Israeli borders. That situation has now changed very radically. Um, the, Syri the Syrian government used to be afraid of Israel, afraid of being bombed by Israel. But now, after being bombed over a hundred times, I rather suspect that mine, the mindset in Damascus may have changed with regard to the Golan. You're saying that Syria has been bombed a hundred times by Israel, not, not the bombings by... By, by Israel. Okay, and uh, over, what, over what record. time period? Uh, it, over the last five years. Okay, so that's all presumably that's in the... In UNTSO's records. Uh, oh, absolutely, yes. absolutely. These are uncontested matters. The Israelis don't always admit that it's them who've been doing the bombing, but it's they don't deny it uh, uh, either. And there are, and they have recently been acknowledging a, a number of these bombing uh, raids. Um, but the paradoxical result is that Syria is learning to live with Israeli bombing. 
and psychologically and militarily, that is quite an important step with implications for the Golan. If Israel can no longer intimidate uh, Syria by the threat of bombing, then you have a new situation. You have a country which is determined to, a leadership which is determined to recover every last inch of occupied and, and as well as rebel-controlled territory. I'm sure that the agenda, that the Golan is going to come back onto the international agenda in a big way in the coming months and years. And the more the Israelis jump up and down about it and about Iran being on their doorstep, the more they are digging their own grave. Uh, the President Putin mentioned the Golan in his uh, recent Helsinki meeting with Trump. And for the first time in possibly decades, mention was made by Putin of Resolution 338. People Which was the 1973 resolution. This, but yes. this is the resolution, basically, which calls for Israeli withdrawal from the Golan. So the question of Israeli withdrawal from the Golan is back on the top international agenda again for the first time in decades. Interesting. So um, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap this up, but just before we do that, um, you recently were associated with the launching of a new organization um, called the Global Network for Syria. Tell us about it. Yes, this is a group of uh, volunteers, um, a dozen or so. Several of them are members of the House of uh, Lords, uh, peers and peeresses and bishops and one former archbishop, all with a keen interest in Syria and all with a keen interest in having some sanity on Syria, on being objective about Syria on not just swallowing the standard narrative, the standard demonization of Syria. Uh, the first initiative of the group has been to send an open letter to Trump, May and Macron, basically saying, hands off Syria. Don't try to impose a Western solution on Syria. Stop your attempted regime change. Let there be elections, let there be free elections, let the Syrian people choose for themselves. But stop uh, your sanctions on Syria, which are only harming the Syrian people, not the government anyway. Uh, do help and stop blocking international reconstruction assistance and be serious about helping Syria. Don't try to make things worse. Well, thank you very much. Um, I hope that you're able to make big waves with this new organization and thank you for talking to me this afternoon. We'll do our best. Thank you very much.